Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Right now, we are looking at markets that are slightly down, not perhaps down as much as some had expected after oil prices surged and continue to surge even higher, uh, the most uh, on record in the wake of the Saudi Arabian uh, attacks on the uh, or the, the attacks on the Saudi Arabian uh, oil production facilities. Joining us now, Peter Cicchini, global market strategist. Global Chief Market Strategist at Cantor Fitzgerald. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time. Let's just start with, are you surprised that there isn't a more marked sell-off in U.S. equities in the wake of this disruption in oil production in the Middle East? Yes, Kate. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Um, you know, I, I, the reaction, I think, is is about right. Uh, the broader markets are obviously uh, off overall, um, somewhat, frankly, offset by the benefit to uh, energy companies with the with the spike in oil prices. Um, the the spike in oil prices itself doesn't really come as much of a surprise to us. So our our target for oil this year has been fifty to fifty five dollars on WTI, um, but uh, we wrote recently that we expected. Uh, geopolitical risk uh, to come into play with spikes in oil between 60 and 65. And in fact, quite frankly, I think uh, this would be a time to sell oil rather than to buy it. I think uh, uh, Aramico in particular has an incentive to to cure this problem as quickly as possible. It may not be easy, but obviously uh, they don't want to delay their IPO any longer than they have to. So market action seems to be about right in response to this attack. Uh, but for us, you know, more broadly, um, we think, as we've been saying, we're sort of in the red zone for U.S. equities for other reasons. So, Peter, I know last week uh, you wrote a note uh, suggesting that the uh, credit markets uh, might be getting a little bit frothy. Give us your sense of what you're thinking there. Yeah, you know, we've we've been careful not to overstate this because one of the things that's been going on uh, is the uh, capital flows into U.S. high yield, really because there's there are very few peop- places in the rest of the world that on a risk-adjusted basis you can get the kind of return that you can get in U.S. high yield. Default rates have been relatively low, about 2.1% uh, for trailing 12 months. And, you know, with, with $17 trillion of negative yielding debt, about $2 trillion of that being in corporate, the flows into high yield in the U.S. have been uh, have been pr- pretty pretty strong, um, and co- couple that with the low default rates uh, until one sees cash flows starting to roll over. Uh, it's difficult to get bearish of high yield. Uh, however, the signs of froth are there. We're we're seeing. Uh, Pick toggle deals uh, come coming out, like the corn main deal recently. We haven't seen very many of those. I think there were one or two last year, uh, but that tends to be a very market toppy kind of event, especially when they go to pay uh, dividends to LBO sponsors. Um, and so we're seeing that, and even just the issuance volumes uh, of late uh, have been uh, gigantic. With I think last week probably the, the third or fourth highest uh, on record, depending on whose data you look at. So, so I think. The signs in terms of issuance volumes, as well as the form of the deals, uh, are, are sort of singing to that that's froth, uh, and it's just really, to me, a question of how much longer it can last. So then there is sort of a flip side to this, which is when you see froth in credit markets and a real robust demand, uh, that typically is a positive for U.S. equities, at least in the short term. So do you view this as being potentially constructive, uh, even if in the longer term, not great? 
Yeah, no, that's that's an interesting uh, point, Lisa, and I and I would generally tend to agree with it. I think in most cycles, when you look at the history of credit cycles, credit actually tends to to, to lead equities, and the high yield market in particular uh, tends to be pretty important to that. I think there are some interesting differences this cycle. Uh, one of which is the the dependence of uh, equity markets uh, less so on high yield and more so on the levered loan market, in particular, in my view. And we're we're seeing some some real signs of fraud. Off there as well, you know. For example, 20% of the uh, of the names in the levered loan index are, are now uh, demonstrating uh, interest coverage ratios below one and a half and leverage above seven times, uh, which is which is really quite something. And we're starting to see a trend in cash flows for those same companies. Uh, really, the growth in cash flows for those companies is is close to zero at this point. So, so yes, I would agree with you. In the near term, uh, I would say overall credit markets are still providing providing support. But um, I think in particular, equities are going to be very sensitive to returning cash flows, especially for some of those levered names. Uh, and we're starting, at least in, in the form of the second derivative of cash flows, starting to see that, that rate of growth slow considerably. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Peter Cicchini, uh Global Chief Market Strategist for Cantor Fitzgerald, uh, joining us on the phone. Well, the United Auto Workers Union is leading its first strike against General Motors in 12 years, digging in for a fight over jobs and benefits that could cost the car maker dearly for an indefinite period of time. To get some more details, we welcome David Welch. David is the Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News, located in our Detroit Bureau right now. David, thanks so much for joining us. Just give us a sense of how far apart you think the union and GM are right now. There's a key issue here that uh, I think really has them apart by quite a bit, and that is the, the use of temporary workers. GM wants more of them because they get paid less, they have weaker benefits, they, they do cut their labor costs overall, uh, but you can also get rid of them much more easily if there's a downturn, so it kind of makes the workforce flexible. They want fewer uh, I'm sorry, they want more, uh, and the UAW wants not only fewer of them, but they want a path to make those people permanent employees. So there's not a lot of middle ground there. Someone's going to have to give on that one. Uh, GM had made an offer over the weekend that had pretty hefty raises and a nice signing bonus. They're going to hire more than 5,000 uh, new workers. So there's some job security in there. It was a pretty nice offer to start with, but that, that one issue, I think, is going to be a big sticking point for them. You know, I'm looking right now, General Motors uh, share price down 3%. And I'm wondering why the uh, the union is doing this now. I mean, sort of what what, what catalyzed this strike? Well, you know, the, the, the labor agreement expired over the weekend. And this is kind of the one shot in four years they have to go out on strike and get a really good deal. There's a lot of pent-up anger over the plant closings that GM announced back in November. That's uh, four plants, including a very big one in Lordstown, Ohio, that President Trump has taken a personal interest in. So there was a lot of anger there, especially when you have GM putting out near-record profits uh, three years in a row and actually affirming guidance that they might hit that number, uh, something close to that profit number again this year. So you have a prosperous GM plant closings, and and the workers are already uh, pretty angry. They want a piece of the, of the record profits, even if we are possibly headed into a downturn. Um, and, and this is their one chance to get a piece of those profits while the company still has a lot of money. So uh, that, that's 
That's the lever they're pulling at this point in time. So, David, what's the sense here early uh, days of this uh, strike? Is this something that is expected to drag on for a long period of time, or can this be a relatively quick issue? Um, honestly, I think this will last maybe a week because GM did, with their first offer that the union really won't talk about yet, but GM made public, they did address a lot of the issues. And uh, those issues, things like pay, uh, things like investing a lot of money in plants that GM announced uh, as part of this, that they were going to invest $7 billion in their U.S. plants over the next four years, that uh, the Wardstown plant will not get a vehicle to build, but they would make a, uh, a battery plant. They would build a battery, an electric vehicle battery plant in Wardstown, and that would hire some of the workers who have not transferred out of there already. And the plant in Detroit that was at risk of being closed is also going to get a vehicle to build. So there, there were a few bones in there for the workers who were waiting to see what their fate is going to be. But these other issues could take some time. And look, there's also a bit of vaudeville here. The union negotiators have to show the rank and file who, by the way, rat, they, they have to vote to ratify the deal. they got to show them that they're putting up a good fight and the strike is a way to do that. Yeah, and it, it, so I thought that part of the story was pretty interesting, the, the piece that you wrote. I do have to wonder, though, it's been 12 years, right? This comes up every four years that they have to negotiate a new contract. This time is different and they're going to dig their heels in and you said that you know part of what's the backdrop here is the record profits and the fact that uh general motors has been closing some plants but you also in the story pointed to a corruption scandal plaguing the uaw uh as part of what is sort of setting this setting the stage here can you give us more color on that Sure. So there's been a corruption scandal at the union that's gone back for uh, well over the past year. And it started at Fiat Chrysler uh, on both sides, union and management. People have been indicted and convicted, basically giving union leaders graft out of a union training fund in exchange for giving Fiat Chrysler a more lenient contract. That investigation has moved to GM. It's slightly different in that the union leaders, including past President Dennis Williams and current President Gary Jones are being accused of stealing money from uh, union charity funds and uh, community activism funds and the general fund for this lavish lifestyle they led in, in uh, uh, Palm Springs, California, renting villas for a month or two, expensive cigars, expensive scotch, just kind of crazy stuff. So the union and everybody, even some of the uh, what's called analysts who watch the union, say that th- that won't really play into this. But I think it does. I think when members don't trust you, you've got to drive a hard bargain uh, to get a deal ratified because the the membership is going to be looking at any deal, really scrutinizing it, saying, okay, do we, we trust these people? They're, they're stealing our money to uh, to buy McAllen 18 and some good cigars. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> why would I trust them to get me a good deal? They've got to drive a really hard bargain here. David Welch, thank you so much for being with us. David Welch is Bloomberg's Detroit bureau chief talking about that uh, GM News, the first strike of the labor union in 12 years.
there is that surge in oil prices that we're seeing today in Brent crude at one point it was the most on record uh, is reaching the highest levels since May uh, but jumping more than 11 percent the question is how long uh, will this disruption in oil production out of Saudi Arabia last what will be the implications for the Middle East in terms of Iranian relationships with the U.S. and Saudi Arabia to help us understand let's bring in John Kilda founding partner of Again Capital so John let's just first get your impression of how much oil prices are rising. Do you view this as a temporary blip or something that has longer lasting legs uh, and potentially even a higher leg up? Well, I think the response has been um, you know, somewhat measured, even though it was the biggest jump since the uh, invasion of uh, Kuwait by Iraq back in the day. Um, we're going to have to see how quickly the Saudis can get the, uh, the situation under control. You know, they're claiming that they can get a good portion of the production back online. Um, and they're also claiming that they'll be able to supply everyone as needed out of uh, available inventories that are in the country. Um, the, the big thing to watch from here really is what the response is going to be. It seems now that the U.S. and a few moments ago, the Saudis themselves are accusing Iran of having uh, done this. And it's hard to believe that the Saudis won't respond or the U.S. won't help them respond. But if they don't, you're going to look incredibly, incredibly weak. So it seems to me that they'll be vulnerable to more attacks and that the security premium in prices is only going to inflate. John, you know, as someone who follows these markets closely, are you surprised at how much this facility, again, one of the largest facilities in the world, maybe the largest facility in the world, how susceptible it was to attack? Um, yes and no. Uh, look, to the extent it was it was cruise missiles coming from Iran, if that's the case, um, you would have think they should have been picked up by some kind of anti-missile defense that the Saudis have purchased from the U.S. Drones are almost impossible uh, to stop, and um, the Saudis are particularly bad at it. This is not the first drone attack, I think, as most people know, on Saudi infrastructure um, that uh, has occurred. Uh, it's been going on for months, and the Saudis have really done nothing about it, which I have found remarkable. Um, they tried to put more pressure on the Houthis in Yemen and, and do other things, but for the most part, as far as a direct response goes, you know, there's been nothing. So this day was um, almost inevitable, but if you look at the satellite imagery, you can see there is unbelievable precision uh, in, in where these, uh, these round tanks that they have there that store the oil uh, got penetrated, almost the exact same spot in each tank that are in a row together. So um, high level of sophistication and uh, certainly for all the money the Saudis spend on their defense, they should have had some kind of anti-missile technology uh, at, in place here. So it's, uh, it's, it's a remarkable failing on their part. So John, I want to go back to what you were saying about uh, how the response in markets has been somewhat muted, especially given the backdrop you were just talking about, uh, which is sort of a, a lack of protection on the part of Saudi Arabia uh, against an attack like this. I'm just trying to understand the counter argument to that, that there's lots of production that can be uh, increased elsewhere and that, you know, the U.S. can increase shale production. This will offset any decline in production out of Saudi Arabia. What do you say to that? 
I, I think that's partly right. I mean, as far as there being any kind of, you know, spur of the moment U.S. shell response, that I don't buy that at all. I mean, they, they, they're not built that way. We don't, uh, our guys don't necessarily, and gals don't necessarily dial up and down the production in reaction to price. As we all know, they just plot along, pump as much as they can, and, uh, and, and deal with the prices as best they can. There is spare capacity out there, though, because of what OPEC and Russia have done to try to um, curtail uh, the price slide. Uh, so we know Russia has spare capacity, UAE, some of the other countries. Uh, also, two of the other levers that are out there arguing against a greater price increase is, is certainly the, um, the existence of all the strategic petroleum reserves around the world, and China in particular, which has almost two years' worth of supply to cover a, a complete cutoff of Saudi supply to China. So, um, you know, we're, we're sort of well banked in terms of uh, oil supplies uh, for now. The, the problem you have, though, is that this turns into any kind of sort of hot war. And it's also remarkable, Lisa, if I could just say quick, um, the fact that these prices aren't up as much much more in light of the fact that we have already lost Iran and Venezuela oil to the global market as well. So it shows you just how sloppy the situation has become supply-wise in the face of diminishing demand, as we were speaking about a few weeks ago. Yeah, John, that's kind of where I wanted to go. It seems like when we talk about uh, crude oil, it's obviously trying to get a handle on the supply de uh, demand dynamics and what had been driving the price. It seems to have been uh, the demand side of the equation and, and investors' concerns that uh, trade wars and other issues would be slowing down demand for crude. But this news coming out of the Middle East brings the supply story right back into focus here. What do you think will be the driver of oil over the next several weeks, the supply or the demand or some combination of the two? If the situation at all calms down and we were, and the situation looked like it was going to be calming down just generally with the overtures that were being made to the Iranians by President Trump over the past couple of weeks, you know, we're going to slide right back down lower. There's really no, no two ways about that. The key economic data that we were all waiting for out of China last night, for example, was horrific again. 17-year low on industrial production growth goes right to the heart of the matter in terms of energy demand growth. I mean, it's just continuing to slip. The U.S.-China trade war is, is really wreaking havoc on these manufacturing-intensive economies in Asia, and, and that's oil demand. Uh, so, um, you know, to the extent this doesn't break out into a war, and it looks like my sense of it is that it's not going to. It's not going to break out into a war. The Trump administration wants to avoid it at all costs. They're going to take this one, too, I guess. Um, and, um, you know, it'll, it'll stabilize and, and head lower until something else more horrific happens. So, John, I, I just want to wrap up with the idea of gas prices in the U.S. and the bleed through uh, effects on the economy. Do you think that if prices were to stay where they are or go materially higher, that will translate into higher gas prices in the United States? Yes, I mean, on the NYMEX today, uh, gasoline prices are up about uh, over 10 percent. They're up 17 cents a gallon. Um, you'll see some of that rip through to the to the retail pump over the course of the next couple of days. It'll take longer for that to go through. We're still at a relatively low price at the pump, but to the extent consumers start to get anxious and if, or if the price goes you know even higher, um, you'll see another you'll see a, a hit to consumer confidence, and you'll also see a hit to uh, uh, freight rates and other industries that rely obviously on fuel for transportation. But also at the grocery store, you'll see the price of veggies right. and other things uh, start to climb. John Kildoff, thank you so much for joining us. John is the founding partner of Again Capital, joining us to discuss what's going on in the energy market. Certainly an eventful day. Well, the ongoing trade dispute between the U.S. and China 
is whipsawing currency markets around the globe, presenting hedging challenges for a whole host of companies. And to get a sense of how some of these companies are managing that currency risk as well as their cash overall, we welcome our next guest, Wolfgang Koster. Wolfgang is a senior strategy officer at Kyriba, based in Phoenix, Arizona, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Wolfgang, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Again, you know, one of the issues with this, the uncertainties uh, presented by the U.S. and China trade issues is currencies. Give us a sense of how well you think companies are managing their currencies, their currency risks. Yeah, so I think that one of the things that we're seeing is, unfortunately, it's all over the map, right? You have some companies who do a really good job, and the key thing is to actually understanding your exposures, really having a good grasp around where are my exposures, how am I exposed, not just on the revenue side, on the but on the expense side, and what's the net impact of that, and then what do I do to manage that properly? That's really the gist of it. The execution of that strategy then of actually putting hedges on, et cetera, isn't as hard. So as we see these companies doing it, the ones who are doing it well are the ones who are ahead of the game. I want to talk a little bit about your company because I find it really interesting and it sort of builds on what we've been hearing a lot. Basically, you do liquidity management for companies, right? Correct. Um, and what that means is helping them manage their cash and risk uh, as well as just in general operations. And it's the software uh, pr uh, that, you, that you provide. And I'm right. just wondering... Why is this such a growth area that companies are increasingly outsourcing some of the basic functioning of the way they run their businesses to software such as yours? Yeah, I think that uh, it's an evolution really over time of how things are going. And quite frankly, treasury and finance are often the later parties to the stages than sales organizations and marketing organizations are. So like you see this- Like Salesforce. Exactly, like a Salesforce. They're typically in the forefront. Finance more conservative and a little bit difficult, more difficult to open up to that because what you have to do when you help companies at the very basis of it, you have to help them get at their data. And that's a really tough thing to do. They have these- enterprise systems like these ERP systems like an Oracle or they have a you know an SAP but now they have bolt-ons so they have treasury management systems as one of our offerings that we also have that help them manage that for in the pre-trade and the post-trade era so raw data to decision then they'll make some decision and actually execute on that and then they need to book that and track those transactions as well and automating that was not easy and quite frankly being able to be cloud driven made that a lot easier because installing those softwares was a very difficult prospect and quite frankly is a very difficult business prospect so we're purely cloud driven and that's why also on this incredible growth because all you do is you hook up your APIs, we do it for you, you implement and you're ready ready to go. And all of a sudden your impacts are major. So you I mean, we see 30 to 50% risk reductions on the currency side. We're seeing much more efficient use of capitals. So the ROIs on that are pretty significant, but you know, sometimes it's harder for people to say, well, my, my great Excel spreadsheets or my this right. process <laughs> is good, but that's what it kind of is. I wanted, that's kind of where I wanted to go. Like. If I think about, you know, the, you know, the world is becoming a smaller place, arguably through technology, global yeah. trade, uh, despite some of the moves against glo glo global trade. So even small and mid-sized companies have international exposures. 
Um, how, do you find some of these mid-sized companies, do they know what they're doing when they're hedging? I mean, when I think of Microsoft, I'm sure they've got 100 people thinking about hedging in their finance department. But I think some of these small and mid-sized companies, it's probably a black box for them. What do you, what's your experience been there? I, you're absolutely right. And the difficulty for these mid-sized companies, and we see there as a major growth area for ourselves as well, is you really have, you, need, you require all these different um, disciplines. So from, a, let's say, a risk management on the, finance, on the foreign exchange side, a, you need really understanding purely accounting. Then from that, you go to really financial risk management, and then you need to understand the markets. You need to understand how to actually execute those things. And technology facilitates that because typically small to mid-sized company doesn't even have, you know, they're not going to hire three people to do this. It's not very cost effective, for example. But we help the largest companies in the world, like the one you just mentioned, do the same thing because for them, it's we're all over the world. We may have 230 currency pairs if you want to stick to the currencies. They all interact. And even if they hired 100 people to do it the technology tells us split a second if you have 100 people doing it it'll still take you four five six hours to do now you're right at the pulse of it so as we do talk about the currency fluctuations mm -hmm. and which companies are sort of able to better weather uh, some of the less predictable fluctuations that we see <laughs> emanating from tweets which companies do you sort of hone in on as the uh, as the potential benefactors frankly of a, a lack of volatility in the wake of that yeah, so I think you have a few different categories. Let's start with, as an investor, I'd first of all, if I want to stay out of this, I'm going to look at companies that are not very international. Big companies like a General Mills. You say, listen, you know, I don't want to, I don't understand this stuff, don't know how good they are. Why don't I just stay in the area where they're much more focused on growth? They only have 11% of their sales are international. So that's an interesting one. That's very stable. That's that's kind of an interesting strategy to just stay out of it, quite frankly, okay? But then you go into companies um, like an Apple or a Boeing or a Texas Instrument, they're really struggling with this, right? They have macroeconomic moves, they have all these sort of things. And what they have to do, they have to go in there and say, okay, like a, like a um, Texas Instrument, 45% of their revenues are out of China. That's a major impact. What do I yep. do with that? So, you know, some companies like a General Motors, they've gone really good at figuring out what their exposures are, both on the revenue and their expense side, and they try to match it as close as possible so they're not exposed to the tariffs. But then what they do, they'll actually take part of it, like the Apples, et cetera, are doing, or Flextronics, for example, is doing really well. They're actually looking to go somewhere else. They're going to Cambodia. They're going to Vietnam. We all know that's big. The, the mm -hmm. currency, therefore, is strengthening significantly. So what this whole trade war does, it does, whether one likes it or not, disrupt the supply chain of China. And that's the intention of this whole thing at the end of the day. And as investors, you have to look at, A, are they going to be impacted? Like a General Mills? No. B, if they are going to be impacted, how good are they at managing that risk? And quite frankly, if you read their 10Qs and 10Ks, and you can actually figure some of that stuff out. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Yeah, Thanks for having me. It's really interesting. Yep. Wolfgang Koester, Senior Strategy Officer of Kyriba, based in Phoenix, Arizona, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios talking about uh, what he is seeing out of companies in terms of how they are planning ahead for their currency risk amid the, the trade wars. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.